Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. The podcast where we make wildly inaccurate promises about whole seasons themed on the Hawkesbury Nepean and then only deliver <laughs> half a series about it. But it's this half. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And this week I will be actually talking about the Hawkesbury Nepean, uh, continuing on from your episode last week, Jed. Excellent. I mean, I should hope so because you gave me a clue that was very specific to the Hawkesbury Nepean, so I'd be worried if you weren't. Indeed, I did. I believe it was a clue about a cave overlooking Lapstone Creek. It was. A cave I'm not allowed to visit, probably. Uh, And you said you you hadn't really heard of this cave before. No. Fresh pair of ears. Awesome. Well, then, continuing on from last episode's rather ambitious and lengthy prose excerpts, we're going to dive right into our normal format and return to that stretch of Dirabin, or Dirabin, not quite sure how to pronounce it, the section that we were calling the missing link from Emu Plains to Richmond. Yes. That land is uh, the traditional country of the Darug people of what is now Greater Western Sydney. Uh, So I'd like to pay my respects to those traditional custodians of the land before we begin, and also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which I'm recording, uh, which is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And in my case, it's the Kootenai people of Interior BC in Canada. Wonderful. All right. So I hope you're nice and uh, wrapped up in Canada over there, Jed. Is it quite cold? Mm-hmm. It's very warm and sunny over here. Very pleasant day. And uh, I thought we would just quickly, before we jump in, cast our minds back to a quite a cold day, the winter solstice last year, when we decided to make our ill-fated trip <laughs> down this very stretch of uh, the river. <laughs> yes. If you remember, we alighted at Lapstone Station Mm -hmm. uh, just after dawn. Mm -hmm. We made the short stroll down to the water. And then we planned, uh, very confidently, to paddle to Richmond in your pack rafts, uh, where we would catch the return train back to Central from Richmond with the obligatory stop in Windsor for a triumphant beer at Australia's (laughs) oldest pub. It was a great plan. It was a wonderful plan. Somewhat ambitious, given the length of the missing link is 27 kilometers, I believe. Yeah, I don't think we made it more than about four. So yeah, while we didn't get very far, uh, we did see some really nice rocks on the side of the river and on the riverbed, uh, which was one of our major goals. And then uh, we did manage to catch a bus to the oldest pub in Australia anyway. Uh, So we've still got some of the fundamentals down for this episode. Yes, you're very excited about the rocks. And I hope you're about to tell the audience and me again about what's so special about those Hawkesbury riverbed rocks. I am indeed, Jed, because this episode's not going to be anything exciting like beer. It's all about stones and also sometimes about soil. <laughs> Excellent. So buckle in. You're obliged to listen to me uh, for at least 40 minutes, but probably more like an hour. I can still picture your enthusiasm from mid last year, and it's great to see that it hasn't abated. All right, straight to the rocks. So we can actually get an introduction to both the rocks and the soil uh, with a little bit of etymology, another one of our favorite topics, Jed. Mm -hmm. And so our story, since it begins at Lapstone Creek, uh, which flows down from the foothills of the Blue Mountains into Girardin, I was wondering, Jed, if you know why it is called Lapstone Creek, what a lapstone is. Uh, It's named for the governor of um, (laughs) Nottingham, Uh, 1742 to 1767. Reginald Lapstone, of course. Yes. No, thankfully, this is not the third Earl of Nottingham. Uh, This is a very kind of uh, mundane word. 
A lapstone is a smooth, uh, large, rounded, water-worn stone that was used by cobblers, uh, people who make shoes back in the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this simpler time, uh, the soles of shoes were also made with leather as opposed to whatever petroleum byproduct they're made of now. Rubber, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I mean, I imagine maybe your really expensive ones are. I would have thought most of them are made of some fake rubber. Okay. I don't know. Carry on. Anyway, it's not about shoes this episode. Uh, <laughs> so back in the day when it was made of l- rubber. Uh, sorry. Oh, you throw me <laughs> off now. now. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, back in the day when they were, the, the soles were also made of leather, uh, the cobbler would hold this large lapstone in their lap and then they would pound the leather that was going to be the sole of the shoe with a hammer against the stone and that would kind of compact the leather down and increase longevity of the sole apparently by uh, making the leather stronger okay so in this creek lapstone creek there were a lot of large smooth hard rocks uh, in the riverbed uh, which we kind of know is quite in stark contrast to what is now much of greater sydney where at least the parts that i lived around uh mostly have crumbly sandstone everywhere not many hard smooth round rocks mm-hmm. all right second piece of etymology you ready ready all right, so we've been talking a little bit about the Aboriginal name of the river, the Dirabun. Dirabun. Jarabun, I think, is one I read. Pronunciation? Not sure. But. Well, I mean, I always find it hard when you're reading a word to know exactly how to say it. Um, apparently, Lieutenant David Collins noted the Aboriginal name for the river in the 1790s, and he wrote down Dirabun. Probably not a very reliable source for the exact pronunciation. Do you have any idea, though, what this word means in the local uh, Aboriginal language? Oh, I came across it in the same article where I got what I think is the pronunciation from, but I don't recall. So, what I've heard is that about 100 years after this, so this would be in the 1890s, I guess, an anthropologist named uh, R.H. Matthews was talking to the Gundungurra people uh, of the Blue Mountains and Burragorong Valley, Mm -hmm. and one of their stories included the word for yam, uh, which was dhiraban, and so the thought is that the Hawkesbury uh, Nepean was called the Yam, Yam River. It was basically the word for, for Yam was used to describe this river. Yeah, okay. I mean, it makes sense. It was a very important harvesting ground um, of yams, which was a really important part of people's diet. So, checks out. I'll buy it. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think we talked about that briefly uh, in our last episode, the richness of the soil and that it was yep. good for cultivating yams. Yeah, so I have a couple of quotes about that before we continue. Not tench, I hope. Uh, no, not Tench. The very first exploratory journey, which we know from last week, Tench wasn't <laughs> yeah. uh, invited on and was a bit frustrated about. So this was in 1789, that first one that I think got up to uh, the falls where they couldn't go any further. Richmond Hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Governor John Hunter. Sorry, he wasn't the governor at the time. The first fleet officer who was later to be governor, John Hunter, uh, noted that the natives here appear to live chiefly on the roots which they dig from the ground. For these low banks appear to have been ploughed up as if a vast herd of swine has been living on them. We put on shore and examined the places which had been dug and found the wild yam in considerable quantities. Mm-hmm. Was it actually quite a nice, accurate account, that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we know that lots of um, areas around the confluence of river with other tributaries um, near rapids and also just along pathways along the side were burned and carefully managed by the Aboriginal people to then be able to cultivate yams in the rich soil. 
amusingly, we were talking about one of Tench's trips that was very slow and not particularly successful, where they kind of wandered around and got lost a lot. <laughs> yes. Uh, I believe it was on that very trip. Was the judge advocate Richard Atkins possibly along for the ride? Yeah, it could have been. It was a fairly large party, that one. I think this was the same trip. It might have been another one where they got equally stuck and lost. Uh, But in his, uh, his notes, he complained that every step we took sank in with the great quantity of potholes. Uh, and there's a suggestion that possibly what they were sinking into and these potholes were were holes dug up while digging for yams by the indigenous people. And so that's why they were struggling. Much to Colby's delight. Yeah, sadly, there's um, <laughs> there's not too much more in terms of very extensive accounts of how yams were cultivated in this area. But there are a number of uh, really beautiful Aboriginal yam sticks used to kind of dig up and... Um, access these yams which are still in the Hawkesbury Regional Museum in Windsor which we'll have to pay a visit to sometime soon because I didn't realize quite exactly where it was it's actually behind the the pub that we went to <laughs> probably could have found a couple of minutes to duck in there we got there too late it okay, would have been right, closed okay. for sure good phew <laughs> Yeah, so the cultivation of yams was very significant. Kind of unsurprisingly, these were also the first lands that were seized by settlers since these were fertile and impressive. Mm. So their crops also flourished magnificently uh, in these well-worked, aerated soils. And obviously the displacement of Aboriginal people there was a significant issue. Yeah. Oh, and that tension between the agricultural sites played out in heaps of places. Um, I think the Hawkesbury Nepean sort of one of the most well-known, but in Bathurst, it was the exact same issue, and I suspect loads of places across Australia where the same sort of sad story played out of the white farmers planting their crops and the Aboriginal people helping themselves to them in the same way that the white farmers had helped themselves to the Aboriginal crops, and then obviously violence ensued. So, yeah, a fairly significant story, I guess, founding story of the nation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly the next thing I wanted to talk about, because just as you uh, very uh, clearly stated, this settlement on the on the Hawkesbury Nepean was really the first battlegrounds uh, in earnest of the frontier wars that then continued throughout Australia that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. So really before that, you have the settlement in Sydney, which had relatively limited spread uh it was around like sandy creek kind of infertile ground yeah and then because of because of the lack of fertility there they moved to Parramatta. but there it was quite carefully like government managed patrolled farms so the extent was somewhat limited it was still the very early days of the colony there was some controls around what was going on and probably also not the most fertile ground compared to the Hawkesbury Nepean. Yeah. And so really it was when in 1794 kind of uncontrolled frontier settlers just started swarming into the Hawkesbury area that you have your first mass displacement of Aboriginal people with very little government oversight on particularly prized country, uh, which yeah resulted in horrifically violent clashes. And yeah, this was kind of the same thing that would then happen across many different areas of Australia, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a hugely significant stretch of river and, and part of, uh, of the Australian continent for that reason, amongst any others. And it, it was also then so fertile, this land, that after the colonial settlers did come to reach ascendancy in these conflicts, this stretch of the river was dubbed the Nile of the South and because it had such enormous significance in allowing the country to become self-sufficient for the first time in terms of uh, crop production. At least it's not the Venice of the South. (laughs) Pretty big claim, you know, the Nile of the South. It's ludicrous. (laughs) 
but I guess it shows just how um, how significant it was for for those early colonial days. Yeah, see how the Hawks Brennan goes supporting ninety million people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think it's quite got the colossal scale of the Nile, but you know, <laughs> it, it was it was helpful for a bit of bread and corn. Also, lacks the consistent flooding cycles. I believe are fairly imperative to life in the Nile Basin. Maybe we could do a different episode. Who said this? <laughs> I think it was fairly widely used as a term of uh, endearment or praise for this area. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, clearly uh, inaccurate and uh, debunked by Jed. <laughs> yep, you're welcome. Right, so we know that this area looks very different now to what it did under Aboriginal custodianship. But along with the fact that the fertile soil still does support quite a lot of farms in the area, the other thing that remains are the cobbled stone riverbeds. Mm-hmm. And it's the stone that we'll turn to now for the rest of the episode. All right, so just a few hundred meters north of where the old Western Highway crosses the train line, which we rode to Lapstone Station, uh-huh. uh, there's a rock shelter looking north over the Lapstone Creek Gully, uh, which I mentioned in my clue last week. Yes. All right, so we're going to get to that now. Excellent. So this sandstone overhang uh, held a really deep record of the many thousands of years that Aboriginal people had lived there. And while you wouldn't know it now, it's actually the birthplace of archaeology in Australia. Go on. You've you've captured my attention. There are no signs of this uh, to be found anywhere around it today. But the only clue of its significance is that apparently, among the predictably inane and lewd graffiti that's scrawled on its walls, there's the phrase, you geeks piss off, (laughs) featuring in uh, large capital letters, which I find quite amusing. Surely that's not from uh, 1794. Uh, no, no, I think this is modern graffiti. When did archaeology kick off in, in this place? Uh, we'll get to that. No, uh, not, not until well into the 20th century. And I, I imagine this graffiti might only be in the last uh, few decades. A geek seems kind of dated. I don't know. In any case, I think we're not talking uh, historical relics here with the graffiti. We're just talking... Uh, lewd vandalism and uh, apparently there are uh, other recent people who've been going around to have a look at this historical site uh, much to the displeasure of the uh, locals who just want a quiet time there apparently and want the geeks to piss off (laughs) well i'm sure we won't be helping that case with this episode (laughs) no no now everyone will want to go there and have a look Yeah, so the uh, traditional uh, Aboriginal use of this country around the river was obviously severely interrupted, as we were talking about, by the arrival of colonial settlers. But it did continue uh, into the 1800. There's not a sharp break there. Mm -hmm. There's many decades of continual Aboriginal inhabitants of the area, but with more and more disruption. Yeah. Um, Sadly, also with remarkably little interest or engagement from the settlers, uh, who, with very few exceptions, didn't particularly... Uh, record or investigate aboriginal culture or language or history that much so really we're skipping forward now from the what uh, 1790s to the 1930s okay by the 1930s there uh, were some amateur enthusiasts collecting aboriginal artifacts uh, kind of wandering around the broader emu plains area and at this point obviously from a landscape that was really barely recognizable compared to the 1790s but with a lot of stone artifacts in the area so again these these collectors sadly had very little regard for or interest in the relationship between these artifacts uh, that they were collecting and the living aboriginal communities in places such as the Burragorong valley and the gully in katoomba which we had a whole episode about jed we did 
Happy to see that come up, yeah. <laughs> and uh, also the Sackville Aboriginal Reserve, which was in less desirable land uh, further up the Hawkesbury where it starts to get kind of hilly. Yes, and there's a memorial there. Yes. On the Sackville Native Reserve, or is it called? Yeah, there's a there's a memorial to the Indigenous people of Jarabin, um, and I guess what happened to them over that period. And it's sort of, I've seen some photos of it, it's sort of hidden in the bush in this, I guess as you say, it's sort of, fairly remote part of the river not not the sort of place you would rush to for your agricultural practice or anything else yeah yeah which i imagine was no coincidence like it's a yeah forced removal of people from the prime land and onto a much less desirable part of the river but great for jet skiing that section really Mm. There you go. Jet ski resorts all around it because of the nice scenery to the sides. Um i think it's because the river's wide and there's not uh, any human settlement, so there's no speed restrictions, maybe. Well, there you go. Um, anyway, so to continue with our story, mm-hmm. uh, one of these collectors uh, in the 1930s was a local Emu Plains butcher named George Bunyan. Uh, and he displayed his collection in a small museum, which was actually in his house. So quite an amateur kind of enterprise, this. And he would ramble around the surrounding countryside looking for Aboriginal sites and artifacts. And it was while he was doing this that he came across the stone overhang overlooking Lapstone Creek Gully in uh, 1935. I find it remarkable and strange that someone could have a big enough interest in Aboriginal archaeology in their local area that they would go spending their free time harvesting artefacts, put them on display to the public in the room in their house, but not make an effort to connect with the descendants of the people who might have some ongoing knowledge about it? Yeah. At all? Yeah, I think in some ways it's kind of indicative of the mindset at that time. I guess these were kind of like little trophy collections in a way or like collections of interesting trinkets of a time or a culture that in their mind like no longer existed and was this like romanticized old thing. And I think there was very little idea that there was continuity and important significance uh, of these objects and a connection between them and Aboriginal people who were obviously still living and continuing their culture in the broader area. Yeah. But where did this guy get his knowledge of, of what he was looking for? Like, how did he know what he had, I suppose? Um, that's a good question. I guess, Paleolithic archaeology, like the the study of uh, of stone tools, had been going on for a long time in Europe and Africa and lots of other parts of the world. Um, and so, I guess knowledge about what kind of stone tools were used by humans over history and how they were created and the different types and things like that was part of scientific literature. So, I imagine that they would have been connected to kind of to that tradition and interested in that, and then applying it to you know they could walk out the door and walk along to farmers' fields and their plows would be bringing up these these stone axe heads and things like that that apparently they would just leave by the by the side of the uh, fence for this George Bunyan guy who was interested in them and he would just come and collect them and, yeah, show them in his museum. Well, there you go. I wouldn't have thought that a butcher from Penrith would be connected to the long history of a Paleolithic <laughs> archaeology. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't actually know for sure, but I, I have kind of painted him as just, you know, some some guy wandering around. And to some extent he was, but he also had connections to to people who were, which we'll get to working in the Australian Museum um, and founding the Anthropological Society of New South Wales and things like that. So yeah, he was definitely connected to people who were pursuing academic pursuits in this. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So 
So we have that element of it for the time, relatively serious scientific study, but then also this quite amateurish side to it where it's just a guy with, with interest in local things. Because when he found this cave, he then invited a number of friends and fellow collectors to excavate the site with him. And they have photos of, of this uh, first excavation taking place. And like he was there together with his wife, uh, with his toddler granddaughter, assorted relatives, friends. They're kind of just a, a mishmash of, of people who were interested. And they kind of descended on this uh, rock shelter, wielding shovels and sieves, and immediately extracted hundreds of stone artifacts, uh, including axe heads, projectile points, and hand tools, and then kind of divided them up. Uh, amongst themselves well at least he wasn't doing uh as auguste mariette did in ancient egypt and just flinging sticks of dynamite into tombs no destruction with dynamite but uh, definitely haphazard and yeah probably not particularly respectful excavation of a site but they must have been somewhat methodical with what they were doing because they did start to notice that there were different layers to the deposits. So the the top layer would be the most recent. And then, you know, as you go down, it gets older and older. And each layer tended to contain different tools. And so what they realized is they were making an observation that that there were actually technological changes in Aboriginal culture over time and that that was indicated in this rock shelter. Yeah, cool. Um, And that was a first. That was actually a very significant discovery in terms of archaeology in Australia. And so when they started talking about what, they, what they'd seen in this rock shelter, it was sufficiently interesting that members of their broader social circle, and this is where the big wig uh, academic types come in, they started to come and join them. So one was the founder of the Anthropological Society of New South Wales, as we mentioned, and then another was the curator of ethnology at the Australian Museum. Uh-huh. And when these people came and joined, they confirmed the initial observations with a second systematic excavation, uh, which included more rigorous measuring and mapping of of the layers and the, the layout of the rock shelter. And they confirmed that this was a clear observation of different Aboriginal tool traditions over time. Interesting. I'm not going to... I'm not going to go too deeply into the different types of stone tools, but, but well, hopefully a little you're going bit. to go a little bit of the way in. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you're hoping for at least a little bit because I thought it wouldn't be a good episode about stone tools unless we talk a little bit about it. So in these upper, more recent layers, there were many large edge ground axe heads. Mm-hmm. An edge ground tool is a stone tool that's sharpened in a similar way to how we would sharpen a a knife or an axe today actually where you rub each side at an angle against a rough wet stone and then that kind of creates a a sharp blade Mm -hmm. and we talked a little bit about the use of these these axes uh climbing up enormous trees uh in in our last episode which very much impressed and enthralled the colonial onlookers (laughs) yes it's yeah everywhere that i was reading about it that was definitely one of the things most stood out so in the lower older layers underneath underneath this though the axe heads weren't present and instead you had much smaller handheld blades than the ones that were in the higher layers as well Uh, so there were an abundance of really small uh, flaked blades and you create a flake uh, by hitting a stone at an angle with another stone, which produces a long, sharp shard. Mm. And that's what we were trying to do together when we were on the, on the with river. With some success, I would say. Yeah, we managed to create a bit of a sharp, sharp blade a couple of times, right? Yeah, and I find this really interesting 
creating stone tools through what this is called flint mapping. Um, and you can find really great uh, demonstrations of it on YouTube. There's lots and lots of videos uh, on napping or flint napping. So if anyone's interested, I recommend looking that up. Um, and it's used in cultures all around the world uh, through history making stone tools. In the context of Jarabin, it's a specific, and probably elsewhere, it's a specific kind of rock, I'm no geologist, that will form the flake or the blade, and then a different kind of rock that's used to hit it? Great questions, Jed. Already slightly going to go off the uh, <laughs> the plan. I don't know how when I was planning on talking about this, but yeah, let's just let's just jump to to that because it's a great question what why why these rocks were significant and they were in this place which is why we talked about lapstone having these special lapstones they're only really to be found in this part of the river in greater sydney that's the only place to get good quality rock for flaking and making sharp uh, axe blades so i have prepared a small explanation of why that's the case which i think you might be interested in are you ready slip it in right here all right, so the area all around Bathurst, which I already thought I'd have your interest here, <laughs> is apparently geologically underlying it all. It's mostly granite, mm-hmm. and it's called the Bathurst Batholith, which is a great <laughs> name. <laughs> name for the colonial secretary, if I recall correctly. <laughs> um, anyway, so the Bathurst Batholith is the name of this uh, geological formation. Uh, and interestingly, the, the pinky orange cladding that's on the opera house so that it's on the building part that offsets the white sails they're they're glazed swedish tiles so they've got nothing to do with australia but the uh, the cladding the pinky orange cladding is from a very particular quarry of granite in the bathurst area i think it's from yagaura could well be which is very loosely in the Bathurst area, I suppose. Well, let's just say it's on the Bathurst Batholith then. <laughs> Definitely is. You, you know the details better than me. But yeah, interestingly, when you look at the, the Opera House, the colour that you're seeing there is, is from uh, the other side of the mountains and where this granite uh, exists under the soil. Yeah, and when they do repairs, this is a massive <laughs> tangent. Yeah. When they do repairs to these buildings, they tend to go back to the less interesting cause it, for the Opera House because it was built in the 70s. But... For older buildings, they go back to the original quarry when they're doing repairs of them. So I think it's St. Mary's at Hyde Park when a bit repair work was being done. They reopened this small sandstone quarry um, up near Wanderbine train station specifically to get the same sandstone so it would be a match oh wow um which i just think is so cool yeah that's fascinating <laughs> not any sandstone will do has to be the right one yeah yeah cool well i imagine yeah might not be such a problem with this granite potentially but i think it is a very particular place where you can get this exact color so i imagine they have to go back to the source yagaura possibly <laughs> look you, you've done very well so far in the pop quiz about rock jed uh <laughs> act confident that's my motto if you were paying attention in high school geography uh you'll know that granite is an igneous rock but do you remember what an igneous rock is oh Oh, uh, one of them is formed by pressure from, like, the Earth's core. Yeah. And the other one is formed by sedimentation. Yeah. There's three. You got two of them already. <laughs> the one, actually, sadly, you didn't get the igneous one, though. Uh, That's all right. We'll get there. <laughs> fill me in. So, igneous is, is when magma is poured out of the Earth's core as a liquid, and then it's uh-huh. solidified. So, igneous means it's coming from a 
volcanic uh, magma. Okay. So granite is is apparently that kind of stone. Sorry, Dr. Ganderton. No, 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 you don't. I was very impressed. You got two out of three. <laughs> that's that's still going to get you a high, at least a credit or distinction mark in my geography <laughs> Thank class. Thank you. <laughs> right. So now you've got the other two. Igneous is a magma coming out. Then we have metamorphic, which is what you were talking about in terms of... Um, Intense pressure and heat being applied to rock, which metamorphosizes it, like changes its constitution or the way that it's made up. Mm -hmm. So when you have magma kind of coming out of the ground, uh, it's going to be very, very hot and it's going to put a lot of pressure on the stone that already exists around it. And so that might cook that other stone into a slightly different form. Uh, So what we have happening around the Bathurst Batholith, around that uh, that granite, is all the stone around it that was changed by the, uh, and turned into a metamorphic rock. And initially it had been sedimentary, which was the third one that you came up with, which is when it's been deposited <laughs> yeah. over time very slowly, like at the bottom of a river or at the bottom of an ocean. Mm. Just think of like small amounts building up and building up and more and more pressure, it turns into stone. So we had these very fine silty clays that had turned into rock. Uh, around that area and then when the magma came out it turned that incredibly hot that stone and when we turn clays or fine grains incredibly hot we can cook them up until they become a bit more like glass now because i think you make glass by heating sand to an incredibly high temperature right Mm. Um, and if you think of glass when you break it it's incredibly sharp and in the same way, if you have these rocks that are very fine grained and then they've been heated up like glass, if you break them, they'll be incredibly sharp. And those are the best stones to use for tools. Okay. And how did they get to Lapston? Excellent question, Jed. <laughs> they belong on the other side of the mountains. Yeah, but as you taught me <laughs> uh, a few years ago, the uh, the Continental Divide is not the Blue Mountains. The Continental Divide what lies west of the Blue Mountains. Indeed. And so rivers such as the Cox's River, although originating on the western slopes of the Blue Mountains, bring stone along with them many years ago down through the the valleys and then over to the other side of the Blue Mountains where they deposited around Emu Plains. Not just any valleys, the Baragarang Valley. <laughs> it's all coming together. Yeah. So actually, I guess now that it's um, now that it's dammed up, there's not, not any more of these high quality rocks coming through. Luckily, we've built a highway across and we can <laughs> drive them through. Also, I think, I mean, I get so lost in the depth of time that we're talking about in terms of these you know geological happenings i think it was a very 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 long time ago that a very long time process that this was happening so it's not like new rocks were coming every day right. they were they the entire bed around the white what's now not even the nippian river you wouldn't it would be like farmland and underneath it all is huge amounts of rock that's come over from the other side yeah yeah it's like when you're looking at those um interpretive hiking signs in national parks and they they all i feel like there's always a sign that's like where you are standing now was once a great ocean yeah (laughs) (laughs) was it (laughs) yes kind of like that so that that that's how long ago all of these rocks were deposited but they're hugely significant because it meant that you had these really good quality rocks for stone tools in the greater sydney area but only specifically in that part of greater sydney Mm. well that's fascinating and i want to distract you with questions about gold and quartz in the bathurst region (laughs) but i will restrain myself i actually don't know anything about that i only looked up (laughs) i only looked up the stuff for making the sharp tools Uh, so that's all i've got oh that was great thank you 
Yeah, so as we we're saying, this this part of Sydney, of Greater Sydney, is the the vital source for this high quality rock. And from very very early on, this was uh, recognised and noted by uh, the colonial settlers. No other than Arthur Philip himself uh, noted that uh, Yarramundi on the Hawkesbury. I imagine this was on the first trip. I think it was. Uh, is the place that, and this is the quote: "The natives get the stones whereof they make their hatchets." Interestingly, since then, uh, in 2005, there was a study undertaken by Tessa Corkill and amusingly named Sourcing Stone from the Sydney Region, a hatchet job. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone has to put amusing uh, puns in their academic articles and no one ever gets to appreciate them. And I'm so glad we did to (laughs) bring them out. (laughs) In this amusingly named paper, Tessa Corkill studied 326 ground-edged hatchet heads that were in the Australian Museum collection and found that uh, 90% of them were made of water-rolled cobbles that would have been available in the the Hawkesbury-Nepean River region. Nearly all of the stone tools that have been found in uh, Greater Sydney, be that like around the harbour, around the Botany Bay, anywhere... um, further towards the coast. Everything had come originally from this area in the Hawkesbury Nepean. Yeah, okay. So what's the hatchet job, apart from a pun? I thought she was going to say it was a stitch-up, but it turns out they're all fake or something. <laughs> no, I think it was a job that she had to do where she had to investigate all the oh, hatchets okay. and find out where they all came right. from. <laughs> Never mind that that idiom has a specific meaning. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why it's a funny <laughs> pun. I'm not sure. I should have read the paper in <laughs> yeah. more detail. <laughs> I'd also like to point out that uh, Arthur Phillip probably didn't refer to the site where the hatchets were sourced as Yarramundi, given that he he wouldn't meet Yarramundi until the next expedition. That's an excellent point. And it would be centuries before the British thought to name places after him. Uh, Yeah, I wonder when it was called Yarramundi. In the 60s. Really? Hmm. There you go. Okay, so what is now known as Yarramundi, who knows what Arthur Phillip referred to it as, probably as stretch of river with cobbles that would that's the last falls right that would have been the last place they got to yeah well they would have called it the falls below richmond hill yes where he noted that the natives of the area were, were getting the stones to make the hatchets from there mm-hmm. yes yeah, so these axe heads from yaramundi and from the wider river they have been found as far as 80 kilometers north along the mcdonald river i presume you know quite well jet not quite well, but I'm aware of its existence. It goes through St. Albans, I think. Very nice. And then also, much further afield, actually a stone hatchet from this area was found uh, on the Sirius, which you will know was the flagship of the First Fleet and was wrecked off Norfolk Island in uh, 1790, so only a few years into the colony. And it was found to be carrying an axe head from uh, this area of the river when the wreck was recovered in 1988, presumably taken as a, a souvenir of sorts. Wow, that's very cool. Not quite as cool as my 18th century beer from uh, the preservation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but still pretty cool. So we've been talking quite a lot about these axe heads that were obviously of a high quality and spread far and wide. What we haven't talked about, we, we mentioned that they were edge ground. Okay, right, because we're in the we're in the top layer of the cave, uh, which sort of correlates to the period when the Europeans were there and obviously earlier. Yeah. Uh, and that was when we got past the flint napping phase into the edge sharpening phase. Yes, yes, exactly. So this is the most recent deposits contain these axe blades and interestingly they, they then don't they don't appear in deeper deposits. But 
although that's the case in the greater Sydney region. Actually, in far northern Australia, so in places like Arnhem Land, uh, Cape York, and the Kimberley, the same style of axes uh, were being used at least 65,000 years ago uh, and are the world's oldest edge ground tools. Oh, wow. That have been found. So that's not the case in Sydney, just to be clear. Like that, but it's one of those fascinating things where you have their evidence of, of tool, tools and technologies moving across the Australian continent at different times and for different possibly climactic conditions. But yeah, the history of Aboriginal use of this type of tool is incredibly old in certain parts of Australia, but it was a recent innovation or introduction in the Sydney area. Do we know roughly when? Uh, I think I do. Maybe I should look it up. Bring it up. Just give me a sec. I'll just talk about it in the meantime. Yeah. That's so interesting. I wonder, like, the fact that the technology was existed and was prevalent in the northern Australia and it took you know, thousands of years to move to Sydney, whether that's because the material wasn't suitable or required some sort of adaptation or whether it was because the tool just didn't serve an important function in the way their society was organised at the time. But it's hard to imagine, you know, given the relative speed with which Aboriginal people moved across the continent when they first migrated from, from the Indonesian archipelago and beyond, that the technology didn't travel at a similarly rapid pace. Yeah, surprising. Yeah, so from what I gather, it's not settled or 100% known of why it is that different tools of traditions happen in, in certain places in certain times. But the, the idea is that it was potentially to do with the client, the local climate and what was the most useful thing to have. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that's so mind-boggling about 65,000 years ago is like, we've gone through epic fluctuations of ice ages yeah. to like into glacials you know like the world is the the climate has drastically changed in that time and in different parts of the continent would have looked really different yeah i mean the macquarie river basically changed the direction it flows in 5000 years ago so you know the whole central west of new south wales looks completely different just 5000 years who knows what happened 5,000 years before that and 5,000 years before that yeah. and so on and so forth to 65,000. Yeah, it's a in kind of incomprehensible amount of time. Yeah, as you said, those are like specks in time in the broad Aboriginal occupation of this continent. So yeah, like 5,000 years, like, oh, comparatively recently. And actually, I've just found it that the comparatively recent use of, st- of uh, ground edge axes in the Sydney area is somewhere between four and three and a half thousand years ago is when yeah. they started being used here. In some ways, that's quite recently. It's like since the last uh, like peak of the Ice Age. It's, you know, the, the recent uh, period. But actually, it's an incredibly long time ago. You know, this is we're we're much closer contemporaries of Cleopatra than she is to this time period when axes were used, started to being used in, uh, in the Greater Sydney area. Yes. Well, that's about the same, isn't it? Two, two yeah, thousand actually, about piece. the same, yeah. So she, <laughs> yeah, yeah, about the same. <laughs> Nonetheless, your point stands. My point stands with minor modifications. Yeah. All right. So these recent, relatively recent axes, we were saying they, they're ground edge, so they're, they're rubbed against a certain stone. And the certain stone that you need is your whetstone to sharpen them. It needs to be of a very specific type. And what it needs to be is a sandstone with a very particular percentage of clay and iron oxide mm-hmm. and then also needs to be near to water because you need to make it wet in order to to rub the uh-huh. sharpened axe blade against it 
Yeah, so there are only uh, a limited number of places where this type of sandstone exists close to the water. And of course, these were uh, used extensively by Aboriginal people. And one of these areas was known historically as Black Falls because it was used so much by Aboriginal people. And it's on that, again, this uh, this stretch of the what's now called the Nepean River between Emu Plains and uh, Richmond. The missing link. As known to our listeners. The missing link. <laughs> we were going to go and see this place, yet. It was one of the things I was really excited about on the rafts. We didn't make it anywhere near this far. It's near the Yellow Mundy mountain bike trails and the Shores Creek Aboriginal area there that's, uh, I think, mostly run by a local Aboriginal group, which is cool. But the, the Nepean River forks around that area and the Eastern Fork had a small cobbled fall uh, fall of water and above it there was actually an aboriginal fish trap which had been mm-hmm. set up and was still intact in the 1940s and there was a description written of it where two sets of boulders were lined up so that logs could be laid across them and when that was done it would close off that section of the river where it would imprison the fish that were at that current moment moving it up or down the river in that section and then they could be easily speared yeah very cool love a good fish trap yeah, 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 it's cool. Because um, I th- I know there are some very famous fish traps uh, in other parts of Australia, but it's nice to know that, yeah, that there was a local one. Sadly, it can't be seen anymore because as we talked about a bit in our last episode, this river experiences fairly extensive flooding. And so the, the boulders have been washed away in one of these large floods in the last 70 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I do recall you being very excited about getting to this spot and studying the satellite imagery of it, figuring out if we could raft the right the right hand fork. Yeah. I suspect the answer would have been we couldn't, because we had trouble rafting the sections that uh we determined we would competently raft from the satellite imagery. <laughs> no worries at all. Yeah, I think actually it would have been a bit of a death trap at that time. There was high waters at, <laughs> shortly after the extensive flooding. Um, it was a bit a bit hairy. I'm having flashbacks to that awful weir. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't talk too much about it, Jed. I told, I told Jamie it was a delightful and relaxing trip. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, we still need to do it, but we're doing it with hard-shelled rafts, something like a plastic kayak, I think. Yeah. And a two-man, so I don't have to wait for you on the flat bits. <laughs> Yeah, that would be nice. A romantic two-man uh, yeah. kayak trip down. That would be great. Um, yeah, we sh- I really do want to do it because to get to this Black Falls area, you basically, it's op- backs onto private property. There's no real way of getting there other than on some kind of kayak or something like that. But it has basically the reason why you still want to go there, even though the fish trap doesn't exist, is there are an enormous number of uh, axe grinding grooves all around the sandstone around this area. Okay. So in 1945, the... Now, this guy, I think, was the one who was the founder of the... The Anthropological Society. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the Anthropological Society of New South Wales. Yeah, he, he went down there and described it, saying, On the sandstone rocks outcropping along the bank, just below the shallows, there are hundreds of axe grinding grooves, some of them the largest and deepest I have ever seen. They are found everywhere. This is by far the largest number of axe grinding grooves I've ever seen at one place. And apparently they're still there. They're slightly more faded because they've had another 80 years of, of water rushing over them, but they're still to be seen if we can get down there on a kayak. Awesome. Well, pencil it in. Shall do. So we got to go to the cave. We got to go to those axe grinding grooves 
Don't forget the Windsor Museum. And we've got to go to the museum in Windsor. Uh, yes, and then there's one more to come. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go to that Sackville Monument as well. Yeah, it's an interesting monument that because I was reading a little bit about it and it seemed like it was a bit macabre and hurtful because I think it's a monument to like an extinct race kind of thing. Like it, the idea being that when the I think the last inhabitant of the reservation died, the conclusion was all of the Aboriginal people that live along this stretch of uh, Hawkesbury River no longer exist. And so we'll make a monument to a people that, that are gone, uh, which is very obviously not the way that we think about Aboriginal culture and people these days. But it does sound like a very interesting place. And it's got a beautiful, huge fig tree that I think kind of surrounds and uh, shades it. Could be an episode in it. Could be. All right. So we've gone on some fascinating and delightful tangents. Um, I thought I'd just wrap up this majority of the episode, which was about loosely this first archaeological dig that established the uh, sequence of technology, of stone technologies in the greater Sydney region. Mm -hmm. The first dig was in 1935. I think they did a bit of digging in the years afterwards. There was a kind of a decade of dragging their heels on publishing these findings. And there was some falling out between uh, different members of the group. Classic. But eventually a detailed paper yeah, yeah, on who would claim credit and all of that. Um, but eventually a detailed paper on the excavation was published in the records of the Australian Museum in 1948. And uh, that paper is considered the foundational text of archaeology on this continent and it's also freely available online but <laughs> i wouldn't necessarily recommend it reading it it's quite it's got some quite lengthy academic cataloging of stone tools that was fairly impenetrable for me to understand so uh perhaps if you have more archaeological training it, it's a delight to read but i found it a bit difficult but what it does have is some really neat little hand-drawn maps of the location of the rock overhang as well as other aboriginal sites along the river including black falls I, I like that map particularly and i think that will be our social media post for this episode and i think you brought that in a plastic sleeve on our rafting trip <laughs> i did i did we didn't get to use it because we didn't make it very far but that was i was you know i had this dream of we were gonna follow the traces of this old map and find our way to significant sites um yeah but the, this this sequence of tools basically became the fundamental way of understanding archaeology in southeast australia there was some extra additions in the 50s and 60s that turned it into three stages so we talked about the most recent stage being large axe heads and larger tools mm -hmm. then smaller handheld tools in the the next stage down and then there was a third one that was then uncovered in later digs and this was known as the eastern regional sequence and basically uh, it's been you know as academic things are revised and critiqued in certain ways so that now we think there were probably gradual changes in emphasis rather than sharp <laughs> distinctions between different periods no. but more or less it, it's it's still used today as a way of understanding the sequence of tools in aboriginal sites their theories haven't been thrown out the window completely no exactly and so yeah it's, i think it's kind of uh, interesting that there's this rock shelter near lapstone which I'd never heard of and which doesn't really have any fanfare around it, but was really significant in the history of uh, Aboriginal archaeology in Australia. Yeah, very cool. All right. So that kind of wraps up the, the majority of the episode about archaeology. Mostly been talking about the things that we do know and have found out about Aboriginal culture in this area. Um, but I wanted to finish with a quick story of what has been lost and what will sadly remain unknown. Mm. So earlier we discussed how uh, significant the rich soil of this country was for cultivation of yams mm -hmm. and then for 
they introduced crops. Potatoes, cabbages and the like, I believe, according to Tench. I think they were growing a lot of maize, a lot of, you know, American <laughs> corn as well, interestingly. Yeah, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. And... Then we've been talking a lot about stones and actually the two stories collide because from the late 1880s, small scale quarries began to appear alongside and then eventually replacing the farmland as a crushing the stone that is to be found in the base of the river that we've talked about into gravel was necessary for making road bases as Sydney expanded. Yes. And this is um, the Penrith Lakes, which is was the rowing venue for the Olympics and is sort of a underutilized recreational site yes. in the area, as I understand it, was, you know, some sort of ephemeral lake system pre-development of the area, but then was expanded dramatically by this quarrying, right? Yes. I believe those lakes are mostly actually quarry holes uh, from extensive quarrying. So, yeah, it started out as, you know, small-scale stuff in the riverbed, but uh, especially in the 1960s, um, after the kind of post-war housing boom, these quarries started to move back from the riverbanks and overtake the farmland of the river terrace, and that's where you get exactly, Jed, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the Penrith Lakes scheme. Basically, now there's kind of a moonscape on a big chunk of the map there, which was just extensively uh, mined for gravel and then also for sand that was used in cement. No, and I think that there's plans to finally rehabilitate the site to a more substantial extent because, yeah, if you look at the aerial imagery, it's quite insane, (laughs) the scale of it. Um, Yes, it's, it's huge. And look, I don't know much about it. I didn't look into it much. It hasn't been used since 2015. Like That was when the last truck left with the last bit of gravel uh and their articles in retrospect are kind of amusingly tragic at the time that are saying you know the last truck is left and it's going to be immediately developed into a thriving hub of you know housing and adventure activities nothing has happened since then there's a very impressive looking website and some good media posts coming out every once in a while there's a two months ago a a video came out of a you know how design studios will do the (laughs) The visual perception of what this place is going to And there's look always like. like all these business people milling around. No matter what yeah. the site is, there's just business people milling. Just, yeah, kind of wandering around with no particular direction, <laughs> looking, looking pleased. Woman with pram, people in wheelchair. It's just like a diversity checkbox exercise. In, yeah. And yeah, and no one has, there's no common direction. I find when I'm in public spaces, usually people are heading in a particular direction, generally. Yeah. Never in these things. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll link to a video of this in the show notes. But the basically the, the big mining companies that are responsible for this enormous hole in the ground, it was, I think, in the, the 70s when they kind of came together and signed an agreement with the local government uh, authorities because they were worried about the rampant uh, destruction of a huge area of the river here. And the agreement was, you know, they, they would mine it for a certain period and then they would uh, be responsible for rehabilitating it. We'll see what happens with the rehabilitation. But in terms of the mining, in uh, 1974, again, this is kind of like a recurring theme, a, a local reverend who was also an amateur geologist and enthusiast for <laughs> yep. um, archaeology, he was uh, permitted to enter the quarry uh, to examine it. And uh, lo and behold, he found some uh, chunky flaked tools right at the bottom of the quarry. Um, 
from very, very deep down. So this would be very, very old stone tools. And we started talking about dates a little bit um, for how old the axes were. But mm. actually at the, time of the, at the time of the dig in the 1930s when they were in the Lapstone Cave, they have no idea about time scales because there wasn't any radiocarbon dating. Yeah. Um, so it's really only in the 60s and 70s that radiocarbon dating starts to show just how incredibly old Aboriginal culture in Australia was. It's only since that time that we had, like, I think all Australians hopefully have, have an idea of just how ancient uh, Aboriginal inhabitants of Australia is. Yeah, I remember the estimates for when Aboriginal people first arrived in Australia slowly, like, blowing out throughout our education. Yeah. It's, like, started at, like, thirty five or 40,000 years, I think, yeah. when I started primary school. And by the yeah. time I finished high school, it was, like, 65,000 years, which is a fairly significant revision. Yeah. You know, once again, it's easy to just go... That's all a long time away, but it's it's thirty extra thousand years. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's enormous. Yeah, um, so it's definitely still an evolving area of knowledge. And so in the sixties, exactly the same thing has happened since the sixties. Basically, so they started off at thirteen thousand years, and then you get to kind of maybe twenty thousand years, then thirty thousand years by nineteen seventy. So when this chopping tool is found in 1974, the initial estimates are that it might have been 26 to 32,000 years old. And that was obviously a very, very old artifact for the time. The stunning thing was that just over 10 years later, uh, in 1987, uh, some, the radiocarbon dating was revised on that rock. They, they did the testing on a, a nearby piece of preserved timber, which is what they could get the date from. And apparently that had been a contaminated sample. And so when they redid the radiocarbon dating properly, it turned out that this stone tool was probably 40 to 47,000 years old, uh, which at that time, 1987, was incredibly, incredibly old. Uh, so the, the front page of the Australian was apparently emblazoned with oldest known site of modern man. Oh, wow. Pen Penrith Flakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the map. <laughs> Lucky we dug all that gravel out, Alistair. <laughs> Otherwise, we never would have found it. Well, sadly, that's not the case yet. <laughs> we, we possibly wouldn't have found it. But the reason why you've never heard of Penrith Lakes being a source of stone tools or an important archaeological site, and you were so shocked by this uh, Australian front page in 1987, <laughs> yes. is, I'm sure, something that you can imagine. <laughs> it was planted there. It washed in. Well... The companies quarrying the area weren't particularly excited about the thought that all of their uh, lucrative oh, uh, no. activities would be halted by discoveries <laughs> of archaeological uh, significance. And so they spent a good amount of time uh, casting doubt on it with claims about it being washed in or falling <laughs> down from higher levels and things like that. <laughs> uh, and so big gravel tends to have just won the day here where there was enough uncertainty about exactly how old it was whether it was indeed from that level uh, whether it was indeed a human created stone tool um, or whether it was a kind of a flaked chip that had just happened naturally from it falling on the ground look i think that given that there was some uncertainty the conservative and responsible action to take was to continue blasting it away and turning it into road base sadly the uh, uncertainty is more or less settled now that these were, in fact, really old human-created stone tools that are, like, more than 40,000 years old. The, the original one found in 1974 is uh, still in the collection of the Maclay Museum. Oh, the Maclay! Yeah, but again, you probably don't, like, I don't, I'd never heard of it due to the successes of Big Gravel here. 
it was never pursued properly despite attempts from local Aboriginal groups to, to halt the gravel quarrying and protect the area. Um, so sadly, we probably walk on Aboriginal artifacts of immense age when we walk down our local roads or our classic 90s uh, primary school asphalt playgrounds. Beautiful. The story comes full circle. Yeah, so so yeah, the the gravel industry really ramped up in the post-war period and actually it was at its peak during the 2000 Olympics, at which point they were quarrying 8 million tons of sand and gravel a year. Quarrying, as we said, has come to an end now. But interestingly, there's one other thing on this land that we see the exciting promotional videos for what it could potentially be other than a lonely regatta center and a whitewater rafting stadium, I believe, but otherwise desolate land. There's a historical cemetery, and there's also one of the oldest buildings that exists in Australia, which is Hadley Park Cottage. Yes. Believed to have been built in 1803 as a farmhouse by one of these very, very early settlers on this agricultural land. Yes, and it's empty, I think. It is indeed. And they're related to Ray Hadley, weirdly, I know. (laughs) Yes, they are. I had like an extensive consideration of whether I should bring that up and I concluded it was not relevant for the episode, but I'm glad that we decided that. <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> Have you ever read Ray Hadley's Wikipedia page? No, I, I guess I should. I just got to look at it again. I was planning on us jumping the fence into there. Yeah, yeah, so was I. I still want to go. Like, you can't, it actually is open to the public once or twice a year i think for guided tours yeah i don't think they'll mind us doing a bit of casual trespassing so ray hadley's wikipedia page is i'd say 70 to 80 percent controversies (laughs) (laughs) it's like a small bio (laughs) and a little bit about his career and then just so much controversies (laughs) it's a it's compelling reading (laughs) I would highly recommend I used to, it. One of the truck drivers I used to work with, he's like, I have to give fake names because if Ray hears my voice, he just hangs up on me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He's got into all kinds of um, pretty extreme um, conflicts with people. <laughs> Legal actions. <laughs> um, all right. On with it, Alistair. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's kind. Of, it's interesting that what was once a significant Aboriginal land that has very old artifacts became some of the earliest farmland of the colony and then was turned into an epic quarry that destroyed nearly everything, that there are all signs of that still there today in different ways. There's a stone artifact in the Maclay Museum that's uh, more than 40,000 years old. There's uh, the Hadley Park Cottage built in 1803, surrounded by the quarry. And then there's these big plans for the revitalization of the area. Um, so I think it's just a fascinating stretch of, of Sydney and a really uh, yeah, interesting insight into the Aboriginal history of the continent and um, also the yeah, significance of those resources for people throughout time. And another reason for our listeners to get along to see the Maclay Collection, which is now at the Chow Chuck Wing Museum at Sydney Uni. Two things to see. 100,000 butterflies and one stone tool. <laughs> yes. All right. Yes. Yeah, so that uh, that wraps up my episode, Jed. I do want to, before I finish, give a massive shout out to a Grace Carson's book 
people of the river. This episode is more or less entirely based on her hard work. Uh, it's the closest I felt to being just a horrific plagiarist uh, in our time doing this podcast. It's a fascinating book. I'd highly recommend it to anyone who's interested. Yeah, you can hopefully borrow it from your local library like I have done multiple times. Very nice. Yes, a lot of her work is super interesting. I used some of her work for the story about the Great North Road. Oh, nice. She's written at length about the waters of the of the Hawkesbury Nepean or Darabin. Um Great story, Alistair. Thank you. I knew I could rely on you to take us deep, deep into geological time rather than just scratching the surface in the last 250 years as I tend to. So thank you for that. Yeah, I got to provide the uh, the dull uh, academic content, you know. <laughs> well, well, I have this sp- spicy uh, reading wholesale from Tench's journal. <laughs> what the people really want. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Jed. I'm now kicking back and looking forward to hearing from you in a few weeks. Yes, your hard work is done. And... Uh, I will be continuing with our, at this point in the season, very strong and consistent theme, uh, which is Indigenous stories relating to Darabin. Next episode, it's going to be a story about a Western Sydney dynasty that most people probably haven't heard of, but clues to their significance to the history of Western Sydney are scattered liberally around the Cumberland Plain and the Hawkesbrinopean. And... One member of the family has featured in both episodes. Ray Hadley. (laughs) (laughs) Close that Wikipedia page right now. All right. Well, I have... Oh, gee, I feel like actually that's a good enough clue that I probably should have some ideas what it's about. But I'll have uh, have to ponder it in the weeks between now and the next episode, and I'll maybe have a good, good crack at it then. Excellent. Look forward to hearing what you come up with and continuing our story down Darabin, which has so far been very enjoyable for me. Yeah, for me too. Looking forward to it. All right, then. We'll see you all next time for Jed's Story from Sydney. See you then. See you then.